Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. A long time ago, preparing for an exam in Canadian history, I gave myself the task of creating a mnemonic that would help me remember the four men who succeeded Sir John A. Macdonald after his death in 1891. I landed with Abbott taught boys to trick. It worked. I've never forgotten that John Abbott was the first to succeed John A. Macdonald, that John Thompson came after, that Mackenzie Ball was third, and that old Charles Tupper was last. This quartet has since been forgotten, almost entirely scrubbed from political history. They are not remembered for especially important legislation or for championing any particular cause. And yet, those years between 1891 and 1896 were critical to Canada's evolution. Michael Hill, who has for a long time been the artistic director of the Mariposa Folk Festival, as well as a writer, has made these four men the subject of his reflections. His book is The Lost Prime Ministers, Macdonald's Successors, Abbott, Thompson, Bowell and Tupper, published by Dundurn Press. We reached Michael Hill at his office in Aurelia, Ontario. Michael, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. It's a pleasure to be with you. witness for this episode. What happened on June 7th, 1891? Well, that was the day after Sir John A. Macdonald died, and it marked the beginning of a search to replace him as Prime Minister. Um, eventually, four other men would hold that position in the next five years before Wilfred Laurier was elected in 1896 and then held the office for 15 years. Um, a word or two about Macdonald. He had been elected one last time in early March of 1891. And in the last days of that campaign, he'd been too sick and weak to, to finish. But uh, nevertheless, he and his old and his party, excuse me, were uh, re-elected on the slogan, the old flag, the old policy, the old leader. Uh, and then uh, May, the end of May of that year, um, Macdonald suffered a, par <coughs> excuse me, a paralyzing stroke and uh, he lingered, uh, unable to communicate, really, until the morning of June the 6th. Uh, but he had never really indicated who should be his successor. Uh, over the years, he had promised a job to a number of people, uh, Sir Charles Tupper, Hector Langevin, uh, Joseph Adolphe uh, Chaplot, but he always backed away from his promises and kept the job to himself. Um, John Thompson, his justice minister at the time, was the obvious choice, uh, MacDonald even, had even said that his greatest discovery was John Thompson. But Thompson, Thompson had a characteristic that really stopped him from being instantly named prime minister. Uh, he was a Roman Catholic. Worse than that, and I say this with, with great sarcasm, um, he had converted in his 20s to Catholicism. And the majority of the Conservative Party just wouldn't accept him. They were mostly members of the Orange Order. Um, that group that was very anti-Catholic and, to a somewhat lesser degree, anti-French. Nobody wanted the job, Michael. It seems as though nobody wanted the job of succeeding John A. Macdonald. That, too. I think <laughs> I think there was a um, sort of a feeling that none of them could, uh, could match the, the old man's um, stature, and uh, they were kind of intimidated, possibly. 
Uh, MacDonald knew even, even on his deathbed that the party wouldn't follow Thompson. And um, he had actually told his secretary, Joseph Pope, a couple of years before that Abbott had none of the skills needed to be prime minister. Um, but just before, uh, just before he died, he told Thompson that the party would have to follow Abbott. So that was as close as Sir John ever came to saying who should follow him. But John Abbott had terrible flaws. For one thing, he was 70 years old. Not that being 70 is a flaw, but in 1891, this is old. And more than that, he was a senator. That's right. And he hated politics. How did he wind up with the job? <laughs> well, he wasn't really interested in the job. Uh, in those days, the, the governor general actually uh, named the prime minister. It wasn't, there wasn't a, uh, you know, a conservative party convention or anything like that. And so... Uh, starting getting back to your initial question, on July 7th, uh, all the Conservatives in Ottawa were running around meeting with Lord Stanley, the Governor General, and with other members of the party and lobbying with each other as to who should be the leader. And Abbott lobbied on behalf of Thompson. Thompson lobbied on behalf of Abbott. C.H. Uh, Tupper, who was Sir Charles' son and a cabinet minister himself, he lobbied on behalf of his father. But in the end, it was Abbott that was picked. And Abbott, like you said, had no interest in the job. He had never had the ambition to become prime minister. And he even said famously before he took the job, and I, I actually had the quote written down here. Uh, he said, I hate politics. I hate notoriety, public meetings, public speeches, caucuses, and everything that I know of that is apparently the necessary incident of politics, except doing public work to the best of my ability. In other words, he was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that sums it up. So who was John Abbott? First of all, he knew he was going to be a caretaker premier. He admitted that uh, in a speech in the Senate a few weeks into his term, that he was the least offensive choice. But uh, as it turned out, he was a decent choice. And in doing the research for my book, I was surprisingly impressed with Abbott and what he had accomplished. He started out as a, the son of an itinerant preacher who had traveled all around lower, lower Canada, you know, Quebec as it was known then. And uh, a benefit of that was that he became bilingual. Um, his father eventually settled in Montreal and became the bursar at McGill College. And that allowed uh, you know, a, poor, a poor young guy like Abbott to be able to attend college and obtain what at that time was very rare, uh, a degree in law. Um, and very quickly, it seems, he became a well-respected and popular lawyer. Uh, he specialized in commercial law and... Um, he began to represent some of the most powerful firms and individuals in Canada. And we have to remember at that time that Montreal was really the only large city in Canada. The business elite was gathered around St. James Street, and Abbott became the country's most influential, and not that it really matters, uh, the most highly paid lawyer in the country. Um, he was also a lecturer at McGill early in his career. Well, he was the dean of the law school. He was the dean when Wilfrid Laurier was a student. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And uh, he was offered a judgeship in the 50s, but he turned it down because he would have had to take a drastic pay cut. One thing about Abbott was he, he knew how to make money. Uh, even in his 20s, he was investing in, in uh, what was, I guess, the most progressive industry of the day, railways. Um, along with his brother and his father, he, he bought a railroad company uh, in the 1840s. Um, in, the 1850, in 1859, I think it was, he purchased the Montreal and Bytown Railway for $21,000 when it went into receivership. Uh, he amalgamated it with another railroad and then turned around and, and sold it for a, a huge, uh, handsome profit. And it was that kind of wheeling and dealing that helped make him a very, very rich man. 
Um, he got interested in politics early. He, he ran for the provincial uh, legislature of the Canadas in 1857 as a reformer. Um, he was named the uh, Solicitor General in John Sandfield MacDonald's 1862 cabinet. Um, and he initially opposed the idea of confederation. He felt that the rights of Anglophones in Quebec would be threatened. But uh, uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, who uh, was a very persuasive person, uh, convinced him to run as a conservative in 1867, and, and, uh, and, and he won. So uh, you fast forward a few years, and one of Abbott's clients at his law firm was Sir Hugh Allen. Um, now, in my first draft of my book, I, I called Hugh Allen the Donald Trump of his day. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's not a compliment. <laughs> Egotistical, self-promoter, uh, very showy. He had a huge, huge mansion, you know, that could uh, – uh, he could hold dances for like a couple of hundred people in his, in his house. Um, so when British Columbia was lured into Confederation in 1871 with the promise of a transcontinental railway, Abbott – encouraged Allen to apply for the rights to build the railway. And uh, this is where uh, Abbott's ethics are maybe a little bit questionable. Um, he was a sitting MP and also the personal lawyer for Allen, so he probably had to be very careful with what he was saying. Um, Abbott followed uh, Allen all around the country, all through the States, uh, over to Britain, trying to drum up money and support to build the railway. and. It also just so happened at the time that the Tories were, well, especially their leadership of MacDonald and Georges Etienne Cartier, uh, needed money to run their election campaigns. And so somehow Allen found this out, and he paid out what would amount to millions and millions of dollars today to individuals, and including some of it even went to Abbott himself. Um, Cartier and MacDonald allegedly received huge sums um, in, in my book, I tried to convert it into $20, $20. I think it came to something like 11 or $14 million, something like that. Anyway, the prid quo quo of the arrangement was not lost on anyone. And uh, there were some telegrams and letters confirming these payouts, and they were stored in Abbott's safe. Um, and for some reason, we don't really know why, his personal secretary stole the documents, handed them to the press and to the liberals. And thus, we have the famous Pacific scandal. Um, McDonald's government fell, and uh, the liberals under Alexander Mackenzie took over the government for the next five years. John Abbott will stay involved with the CPR. He'll be part of the team that revives it when the Tories come back to power in 1878. He'll actually be at Krigalaki. Uh, when the final spike is uh, driven into the ground, he, he, he'll never leave the, uh, the railway business, will he? No. Uh, in fact, he was the Canadian Pacific's uh, lawyer, and he drew up the, the contract, which was considered one of the, the most rock-solid contracts ever drawn up between a company and the government. Personally, it was just so interesting, all the other things that he, he was interested in be, beyond politics. Uh, I've mentioned business. Uh, in his personal life, he married into the Bethune family in Montreal. He had eight children with his wife. He owned a downtown mansion. And then uh, an estate on the west end of Montreal Island that had been the seniory at one time of uh, Charles Lemoyne. Um, he wrote a book. Uh, he was a member of the St. James Club, the Masons, the Orange Lodge. Apparently, he had a, a very fine uh, tenor singing voice, and he was the choir director of Christ Church Cathedral in Montreal. Um, 
he had a fascination for the military, and he founded a, a militia company in Argenteuil, north of uh, Montreal. Uh, he sat on the boards of many companies. So, uh, like, he had all these other interests. Um, he was the initial architect of the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal, helped found what became the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. So, yeah, he, he had all these different interests that made him so interesting. Um, Beyond, beyond the politics of being the prime minister. Uh, now, the first thing he had to deal with when he did become prime minister was uh, Hector Langevin, who had been McDonald's uh, chief uh, Quebec lieutenant and a uh, father of confederation, um, was involved in a kickback scandal. Scandal, so he had to he had to kick Langevin out of the cabinet. Uh, he, apparently, he promised him the lieutenant governorship of Quebec, but never followed through on it. He, he apparently cleared up a, a, a massive legislative backlog that had followed McDonald's death. Uh, so he was praised for that. And he was said to be a really serene presence at the cabinet table. Uh, he was never overly emotional. And um, that was kind of important, considering that the Tories at the time were rather quarrelsome and, and fractious. Uh, they seemed to fight about a lot of things. He made the, the uh, I guess you'd call it a smart move. He named John Thompson as the leader of the government in the Commons because he was limited to speaking in, only in the Senate himself. But he doesn't stay prime minister for very long, Michael. No, uh, he was only in office for about a year. Um, and so his accomplishments are rather meager. Uh, Why did he resign? Uh, well, that was a health reason. Uh, in July of uh, 1892, one day, while he was working in his office, he was just overcome by dizziness and anxiety. Uh, he collapsed in the office. Uh, they they kind of revived him. And when he went to doctors, they, uh, they told him that he was suffering from a, a weakened heart and circulation problems. So he tried to resign at that time, tried to turn it over to Thompson, but the party still wouldn't hear of it. And then uh, in the autumn of uh, 1892, he traveled to England to uh, speak to doctors over there. And he was diagnosed with uh, having a brain tumor. And at that time, that was certainly a terminal condition. So he had to resign. John Thompson, the, the fellow who is a converted Catholic, uh, is chosen uh, is chosen to, to succeed him. Now, John Thompson's only 47 years old. I, I, I kind of think of him as, as a young John Turner. Who's John? Who is John Thompson? Okay. Uh, Thompson, as I say in my book, was the, the great might-have-been prime minister, or might-have-been great prime minister, I guess I should say. Uh, everything in his life had pointed to great potential. Uh, he was able to rise really quickly, no matter what you know what, what uh, task he took on, but uh, it was all cut short by a premature death. Um, he was another lawyer that this time he came from. He came from Halifax. Um, he had become a city councillor and then a provincial cabinet minister, and then very briefly um, the premier of Nova Scotia. All in his early you know twenties and thirties. Um, but following the defeat in the provincial election of eighteen eighty two in Nova Scotia. Uh, he accepted the job as a judge on the Nova Scotia Supreme Court, and he was placed there by none other than Sir John A. Macdonald. But uh, a couple of years later, uh, Macdonald needed some fresh blood in his uh, federal cabinet, so he came back to Thompson and offered him the post of uh, federal justice minister. Uh, Thompson, yeah, he didn't really know if he wanted to do that. He, he liked being a judge. Uh, but uh, Thompson's wife urged him um, to move to Ottawa. And in his very first speech in the House of Commons, 
which was about three hours long. They, <laughs> they like to talk in those days. Yes. Uh, uh, it was a defense of the government's actions in the execution of Louis Riel. And he, he was so eloquent uh, a speaker, and he had such a logical mind with, with what he said that he was immediately the talk of the town. And, you know, very shortly afterwards, Thompson uh, was sitting beside MacDonald in the Commons and uh, arguing policy on the behalf of the government. Uh, and that's where MacDonald said famously, you know, my greatest discovery was Thompson. Um, Thompson didn't really enjoy his time in Ottawa initially, and he complained constantly in letters to his wife, Annie. She had stayed back in Halifax with their five kids. Um, but uh, when he whined in his letters to her, she scolded him and basically told him to man up. Uh, not, her <laughs> not her term, of course, uh, but to, to go out and socialize. And, and so he did. Um, the couple's letters are really an interesting side story. Um, they wrote to each other incessantly. And often on the back of the letters, there would be a, a shorthand that only the two of them could understand. Uh, it was a code that actually wasn't deciphered until the 1970s. Um, and the content of the shorthand was often erotic in nature, uh, full of very non-Victorian references. Um, let's just say that the, the two probably had a very good sex life. Uh, <laughs> This is why we do these podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> well, who says Canadian history is boring, right? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody here anyway. John Thompson does not live a long life, however. No. Um, well, he, uh, he did become prime, uh, prime minister eventually. Um, he should have been picked in, in 1891, but the orange, uh, the orangeman had made sure that didn't happen. Um, they, they actually called him a pervert. But it's not the pervert that, uh, you know, not the way we use the word now to, you know, to, it doesn't have the sexual deviance connotation. Um, uh, a pervert at that time simply meant uh, anyone who converted from being a Protestant to being a Catholic. Even Lady MacDonald had called him that. And um, so Thompson did take over from Abbott, and um, he... Uh, his, his first order of business, I guess, was to um, show the Orangemen, that, to assure them that uh, he was capable of handling the job without favoring the Catholic religion. And uh, he was the target of many vicious attacks. It's really, it, that's one of the interesting things about the politics in the 1890s, the, the religious uh, overtones to it. But it's important to remind our listeners, and it's an important, I think it's important for people to realize that the real... The real divisions in Canadian society were religious. It was the Protestants versus the Catholics, the English versus the French. Uh, these were serious issues, and you had a context. You had the, the Jesuits' estates um, issue that had just barely been resolved. You had the, the division over the Manitoba schools that again pitted Protestants against Catholics. Those were the tenors. Those were the, the, the times. It wasn't, I mean, it's an important thing to remember, is it not? Yes, and, and I think, you know, nowadays, you know, when religious religion doesn't play at least in Canada, doesn't play as much of a, a role. It's it's interesting to, to, to look back at that and see how how strongly people felt about those things at that time. Now, you were, you were starting to say about uh, Thompson um, dying in office. Um, well, yes, rather unusually, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. Well, he was only five foot seven, 
uh, but he weighed over 250 pounds, uh, and he was what we would now call a junk food addict. He, apparently, he would often live just on candies as he worked in his office all day long. And uh, his only physical activity uh, involved walking from his home in Ottawa to the Parliament buildings and then back again in the evenings. Um, so he was only in his 40s. Uh, but uh, he began to suffer from angina. And just as doctors didn't know much about cancer at the time, at least brain tumors, uh, they didn't un really understand heart disease. And uh, they suggested to him that he take time off and spend a winter in a warm climate. But of course, he poo-pooed that idea. And then in uh, 1894, he was invited to go to Windsor Castle in December. Uh, to be invested in Her Majesty's Privy Council. And being such a, a supporter of the empire and the queen, um, he was naturally honored and thrilled. And, and it was an excuse for him to get away from the daily pressures of government. So he and his daughter went to Europe. They toured around for about three weeks. He set her up in a private school in Paris and then traveled back to London. And uh, on the morning of December 12th, he traveled to uh, Windsor Castle for the investiture um, ceremony. Um, uh, immediately following the formalities, he was escorted to a luncheon in one of the castle's dining halls. And he said he felt weak and he fainted just as the lunch was about to start. So a couple of the people who were with him, they, they escorted him out into a hall. They revived him and then, uh, much embarrassed, he, he returned. He sat down at his seat and he had no more than sat down when he just keeled over into the queen's doctor's lap, and he was dead of a massive heart attack, uh, only 50 years old. Queen Victoria was very um, sensitive to his death. Yes, she was very upset. I suppose, you know, looking back at, uh, you know, Prince Albert uh, dying so young, she probably could very much relate to uh, what uh, Annie uh, Thompson was going to go through. And, uh, you know, the Queen arranged for a, a special battleship to carry his body back to, to Canada and, and uh, did, quite a few, quite, did quite a few things that uh, uh, were not her, her usual uh, modus operandi, I should say. So, Michael, at this point, it's December 1894. The Conservative Party had uh, John Abbott for a year or so as prime minister. Uh, he retires for health reason, uh, reasons. John Thompson uh, is retired for health reasons. He'll last two years. The party seems to be swinging back and forth. They, 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 uh, a patrician is chosen. John Abbott, a patrician, uh, is chosen prime minister. Then you have a Catholic from Nova Scotia. And then the party turns to Mackenzie Bowl, who's the opposite of a Catholic. He's an orangeman from Ontario. Who is Mackenzie Bowl? Um, well, Mackenzie Bowl uh, was, was the acting head of government while Thompson was away in England. And he just he came to that by that position not out of outstanding talent or any kind of close relationship with the prime minister. Uh, he was leading just because he was the longest serving cabinet minister, and uh, he had none of the none of the skills that really were, were required. Um, and I think the main reason that the governor general Lord Aberdeen at the time uh, named him to be prime minister was that. Uh, like I said, there were there were no leadership conventions or anything like that, and uh, uh, Bowell had proven to be a, a capable administrator. So I, su I suspect that was part of the the reason. And Aberdeen wanted a speedy and smooth transition. So, uh, talking a little bit about Bowell, he he was an MP 
from the Belleville area in Ontario, and he had been re-elected every year from 1867 up to 1892. And then Thompson had named to the Senate. So here we have another senator as, as prime minister. Uh, he was a familiar figure in the party and around the country. Uh, he, they nicknamed him Grandpa Bowell, um, likely due to his appearance as much as his age. He was 71, and he had this impressive Santa Claus snowy type of beard, right? And um, so he, he kind of represented some continuity as well. Uh, he was... Um, Content to follow the same path that Macdonald, Abbott, and Thompson had been had been um, going down, and he uh, he was by nature a very small C conservative. But he's not an effective leader. No, not at all. Uh, he had an interesting background, though, as well. He had attended uh, uh, a normal school, uh, what we'd now call a teacher's college, but. Uh, never stuck with teaching as a career. Uh, he became a printer and ingratiated himself with a local newspaper publisher and eventually managed to purchase the paper, the Belleville Intelligencer. So he became a very successful and, and well-respected newspaper man at a time when newspapers were, were really, really important. Uh, he was eventually one of the founders of the Canadian Press Association. Um, he used his paper to... Uh, uh, you know, get his views um, known, much like, uh, you know, people like Joseph Howe and William Lyon Mackenzie. Uh, it got him elected as well. And uh, like you say, he was, uh, uh, he was a prominent Orangeman. In fact, he, he had risen right to the top of the order. He was the Grand Master of British North America uh, in 1870. And uh, that certainly didn't hurt him with the voters in that uh, United Empire loyalist part of Ontario. Uh, so Bowell uh, took over. Uh, he was never a dynamic speaker or anything like that. Uh, in fact, other ministers like Thompson used to were known to speak in defense of Bowell's ministry during question periods. Um, where he did shine was as an administrator. Uh, he had been named Minister of Customs uh, by Macdonald in 1878, and that was a key portfolio in those days because customs duties were one of the few sources of revenue for the federal government at the time. And uh, he, he developed a, a, a reputation as a very honest and efficient man. Your point about being a leader of the Orange Lodge really puts Mackenzie Bowl in a difficult situation when the Manitoba schools question erupts. Um, what's, what's his position on the Manitoba schools question? Uh, well, this is part of his, his, the problem with him being a, uh, an ineffective leader. Uh, he, he tried to uh, imitate MacDonald in a way. He tried to, basically he tried to procrastinate. Um, he didn't, uh, he had a chance to, uh, to overrule the, the Manitoba government, but uh, he, he decided to sort of uh, let things slide. But that, that just caused him problems with the cabinet. The Manitoba schools question, that's one of those issues that I find rather complicated uh, in a way. Um, with the Manitoba Act of 1870, which uh, created the province, uh, they set up a system of separate schools, uh, English Protestant and French Catholic. Uh, when Manitoba entered Confederation in 1870, most of the Anglophones in the province were Protestant, most Francophones were Catholic, and their numbers were approximately equal. But uh, during the 1870s and 80s, uh, many of the French-speaking Catholic Métis uh, moved west, and then the settlers coming into the province were predominantly English-speaking Protestants. So by 1890, 
the French Catholics in Manitoba were just a small minority. So in March of that year, the provincial legislature abolished French as an official language, and then it passed a law setting up a non-denominational system of education. And uh, so Catholic parents would have to pay for any kind of Catholic school, but also pay taxes to the public system. So this new legislation naturally created tension between Catholics and non-Catholics, not just in Manitoba, but all across the country. Um, there were court challenges, of course, um, uh, and uh, one of the rulings by the Privy Council in Britain, at that time, that was a higher court even than our own Supreme Court, um, it said that the law was, was valid, but then another court case in early 1895 said that the federal government could disallow the legislation. So this all landed in Bowell's lap, and he made a mess of it. Um, C.H. Tupper, his justice minister, persuaded the government to accept remedial action, that's, which would have forced the uh, Manitoba government to pass new legislation. But Bowell thought it was just better to, to wait, and he didn't back Tupper's proposal. Tupper resigned temporarily, uh, and Bowell's, uh, Bowell's solution was to just extend the life of the parliament instead of going to the polls, and he hoped that the issue would kind of either fizzle out or, or would be solved somehow uh, before it became an election issue in the next election. Um, so it was this kind of quibbling and, and uh, indecisiveness that uh, really um, turned a lot of the, the Tory caucus and especially the cabinet against they revolted against him. Yes, in my book, I go into all the machinations, and and uh, the long and short of it is that Bowell ended up turning over the role of prime minister to Sir Charles Tupper. Okay, so it's important to remind uh, us here that you know they're going to turn to Charles Tupper, a man who's been involved at the high level politics since the 1860s. Uh, he's now 75 years old. This will be the third man in his 70s. <laughs> The fourth, the fourth man, if you include Johnny McDonald, who was 76 when he died, John Abbott was 70 years old, Mackenzie Bull was 71 years old, and the party turns to Charlie Tupper, who's now 75 years old, uh, to lead the party. Uh, Charles Tupper will not last a very long time, now will he? Uh, no, <laughs> it's the shortest uh, uh, term uh, of uh, prime minister in Canadian history. Uh, and it's really, in some ways, it's unfortunate because Tupper was a very, very capable politician. And, uh, you know, ha had he taken over at a, a younger age, he probably would have done a very good job and would have been well remembered by Canadians. But that's history, a lot of, a lot of what ifs. Well, Tupper is the guy who goes into the election in June of 1896, and even though the Conservatives lost the election, they they won the popular vote by an enormous margin. Um, what does this say about the Conservative Party in this period from 1891 to 1896? I mean, they seem to be rudderless, they seem to be out of their depths, and yet they still they'll still pick up 48% of the vote when the Liberals will barely pick up 41% of the vote. How do you explain that? <laughs> um, well, I think part of it is uh, if you look at the populace of, of Canada at the time, um, so many of the, the voters, there were probably only about a million voters at the time, but they, um, they were of British stock. And the Conservatives had... Uh, 
um, well, under McDonald especially, they had um, sort of decided that they would support closer imperial ties with England, whereas Laurier and the, the liberals were talking about closer ties to the United States. Uh, they were obviously looking more forward. Um, uh, Thompson, for example, he had uh, he, he he was a very much an imperialist like Macdonald, and he had said uh, publicly that oh maybe Canada would become separate from England when we reached fifty million people in population. So <laughs> so that kind of gives you a, a a little bit of a picture. Uh, Laurier and the Liberals that they were they were I don't know if you call it lucky or not but because of the huge block of seats they took in Quebec they were able to uh, out, um, able to win that 1896 election by 117 seats to only 86 for the Conservatives. Yes, I mean the the, the Liberals were obviously a lot more efficient. They they picked up a huge proportion of Quebec seats. They they picked up 43 seats in Ontario. Uh, even though, again, their percentage of the vote was slight, uh, they still managed to pick up uh, almost half the the uh, the vote in Ontario. They uh, they picked up most of the votes, uh, most of the seats in British Columbia. Um, their vote was more efficient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think you could say that's that's been true uh, if, of many Canadian elections. Uh, yes, it wasn't the only the only time. So at the end, I mean. Tupper, Tupper doesn't run a great campaign, and there's not a whole lot that we could say about the conservative tenure. Do you think? Do you think the election was lost simply as a result of electoral accidents, or do you think that these four gentlemen uh, actually deserve the repudiation of the electorate? I'm not really sure if it was a repudiation so much as. Um just a, a series of misfortunes. Um, I, I suspect that if, if Thompson had survived, had, had lived longer, that um, he would have give, given Laurier more of a fight. But then again, maybe the country was looking more uh, to the south rather than across the Atlantic to, to England. And uh, maybe it was just inevitable that uh, the Liberals and a, and a pro-U.S. Um, approach would, uh, would eventually win. How did these guys see themselves as prime ministers? You mentioned uh, that Abbott saw himself as a caretaker. Was it the same for, for others, for, for Bowell or even for Tupper? Thompson obviously was, was cut down by, by his death, but was there a caretaker mentality that would have undermined the conservative effort in 1896? Um, I think you can say that about Abbott and about Bowell. Um, I don't think that was true about Thompson. Uh, I think Thompson thought he was in for the, the long haul. Um, with Tupper, <laughs> uh, like you say, he was 75 years old, but he was a, a feisty old guy. And I think he sort of thought that, okay, this is my turn now. And, you know, being 75 uh, meant nothing. And he thought that he could win, that he would carry the country, that he would uh, he would be a leader and and probably, you know, do as good a job as John A. Macdonald had done. He lived for another almost 20 years, did he not? Yes, he lived until uh, 1914, I think it was. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. This is just a little bit of trivia about, uh, about Tupper. He was, uh, you know, 
in, well into his 80s, he was still a, a, a going concern. He, he learned Italian. He he took up golf, uh, and he was still par- partying away in, in, over in England, where he re- had retired. Michael, why do you think this story is important? Well, oh, this this might sound a little heavy-handed and, and elitist, but I think like you and anyone who follows podcasts like this, um, uh, we share a belief that history is important and. Uh, knowing what led us to the present time, all that all that stuff is uh, something I consider a duty of a citizen. Um, I think it's important we know our leaders, the historical ones as well as our contemporaries. Um, I think Canadians should know about our, our stories and our past. And uh, I'm not sure that we actually learn a lot from our historical figures, but when you see them as real people who tried to do real things at certain times, um, it might give us more insight and maybe a little more compassion about uh, what today's leaders are trying to accomplish. What surprised you the most about these four guys? Um, well, I, I think what it was uh, was that um, they were all very, very accomplished in fields outside of uh, outside of politics. Um, Abbott was uh, he was a force to be reckoned with in the business world and a highly respected academic and lawyer. Um, Bowell was one of the leading newspaper men in the country, like I said, in a day when newspapers really mattered. Let, let, let us say that the Belleville Intelligencer is still in business. Yes, it is. <laughs> good on it. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Thompson was a remarkable lawyer. And an intellectual giant. You know, he was like the smartest man in the room, you know, much like uh, Pierre Trudeau and uh, a legal giant as well. Uh, Tupper was a... Uh, he was a physician who, even as an MP, he carried his little black bag with him into the Commons. And uh, but he was uh, one. Of, he was the founding president of the Canadian Medical Association, and and he was elected eventually to the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. So th- they all were able to to do um, uh, amazing things outside of politics. And then within politics, you know, Abbott and Tupper had played huge roles in getting the Transcontinental Railway built. Um, Thompson brought stability and honesty to his brief administration. And Bowell, even though he was a failure as prime minister, um, had been a very competent cabinet minister. So um, I, I just, I, I found them admirable in, in many, many ways, whether it was politics or not. Now, I want to talk about you, Michael Hill. Uh, you want to, you, you've come, you're coming at this from a very different perspective. This is your first book of history. Um, what, what compelled you to, to take the time to, to write uh, the kind of history that you've done? This is not an academic history. It's an excellent book. It's an excellent book, and I congratulate you on it, but I, I will simply say that there are no footnotes in it. This is a book that's written for a wide public. How do you think about Canadian popular history at this point? What compels you to get involved in these waters now? Oh, geez. I, I think my answer is going to be rather bland. <laughs> uh, you're right. I, I come from a different background. I, I was a teacher and then a, a music producer. So, um, But I, I've personally, I've just always been interested in history and politics. Uh, I studied history and political science at university. Um, my honors thesis was on the formation of the 1930 R.B. Bennett cabinet. Um, so I, I wasn't really a, a stranger to Canadian political history. And even my previous book, which was uh, about the Mariposa Folk Festival, was largely a, a history book um, telling the story of, of that event over five uh, decades. Um, 
So for this uh, specific topic, I just I had always kind of wondered. We went from the the long McDonald years. Uh, we had this little brief interregnum, and then the start of the the Laurier era. And I thought to myself, hmm, six prime ministers in the space of five years. That that's got to be an interesting story that I think a lot of people would be interested in. And and. Uh, I, I see a lot of uh, you know political history being written. Uh, I think people are, you know, because politics has such a, um, you know, such a, a big factor in all of our lives. I think people are getting maybe more interested in it, which is a good thing. Well, I I, I share your optimism, and I and I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope so. Either way, the the succession of conservative prime ministers uh, going from McDonald to Abbott to Thompson to Bowl to Tupper and then Laurier in 1896. We're talking about six prime ministers in six years. It's an unprecedented moment in Canadian history, and uh, it has never been uh, relived. Uh, that was the only time we've had so many prime ministers, one per year, basically on average. You've told the story very well, Michael. I congratulate you, and I thank you very much for spending the time with me today. Nice talking to you, Patrice. Thank you. Speaking with Michael Hill, and his book is The Lost Prime Ministers, McDonald's Successors, Abbott, Thompson, Bowl, and Tupper, published by Dundurn Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. I want to thank our sponsors, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, and the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. This podcast on Canadian political history was particularly sponsored by Mr. Don Bourgeois and Ms. Susan Campbell of Kitchener, Ontario, in honor of their parents, Jean-Marie and Mary Bourgeois, and Aloysius and Regina Campbell, who instilled in their children a passion for all of Canada and for its political history. And we thank them in particular. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations. And that always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling your friends in whatever way you prefer how much you enjoyed it. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded on January 24th, 2022. Jessica Schmidt is our producer. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you.